Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Matthew chapter 16, and we be reading verse 21. And the word of the Lord declares this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. The author and pastor of Grace Community Church um, and president of Master's University and Master's Seminary, John MacArthur, once wrote, The more you focus on yourself, the more distracted you will be from the proper path. The more you know him and commune with him, the more the Spirit will make you like him. And the more you're like him, the better you will understand his utter sufficiency for all of life's difficulties. And that is the only way to know real satisfaction. Well, I'm just grateful to have you guys back here to the third part of this series titled Distracted. And the reason why we're in this series is because we are. We are very distracted in just about every conceivable way. We're distracted at home. When we're at home, our minds are elsewhere. We're thinking about work or bills or responsibilities or who's taking the kids to the doctors. We're also distracted during our family time. As we've said many times, you can sit in a room with all of your family all together for hours and not say a word to each other because everybody's lost in their own little worlds on their own little screen. We're distracted at work because while we're at work, we're thinking about other things. You know, getting the oil changed in the car, you know, money issues, family issues, health issues, taking care of stuff like getting the taxes done, going to the dentist, not to mention all the other activities like little league games and award ceremonies and who's hosting the UFC fight this weekend. We're distracted when we drive, eating while we drive, texting while we drive, checking Twitter while we drive, changing the MP3 player while we drive. And most importantly, we're distracted in our time with God. So often when we begin to pray and we get alone with God, so often when we come to worship, we lose focus and our minds begin to wander to other things. We think about all the other areas of our lives that need our attention. And we think about all the things that we have to do because I know that we all have an overflowing to-do list. Or we get distracted by all the little electronic devices that, that we have, you know, that we take everywhere we, where we go. They chirp and they, 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 they beep and vibrate and they insist over and over again that we pay attention to them instead of focusing on God. Or worse, we just get so busy with all the things that we have to do in life, we just get distracted and we forget that God is even there for us. And so, yes, we are distracted. We're very distracted in just about every possible human way. And as we talked about being distracted comes with a heavy price. Our distractions can cost us in our relationships with our families and our children and our friends. Our distractions can cost us opportunities at work. Distractions uh, can cost people their lives on the road. But the most important, these distractions can cost us dearly in our relationship with, with God. For example, right, when we become distracted from God, we tend to lose sight of Christ. And when that happens, we begin to lose sight of the gospel. And what that means for us. And being distracted from God, it also causes us to try to start 
living our life in our own strength and in our own power, forgetting that God is there for us and with us. And worse, being distracted from God tends to lead to trials. We get distracted, and that oftentimes leads us to fall into temptation and sin and all kinds of difficulties. Being distracted um, from God negatively impacts our lives, as we talked about. And in the first week of this series, we begin to talk about the fact there are four major areas the Bible addresses uh, that, that are distractions for us when it comes to our relationship with God. And we begin to talk about those things. And we, we didn't talk about what we were going to do about that. And, and we started talking with the fact that much of what we, we are distracted by, many of the distractions in our lives are not necessarily bad things. Much of what we're distracted by are actually good things that are just have gotten out of priority. They've taken over priority of other important things in our lives. These distractions can be our work or school or sports or hobbies. Um, they, can, they, they can even be our ministry and our, our service. So many of these things are important to us, but they overcome other important things and take away our time with God. And as we discovered, the solution to this problem was to make a point to spend time with Jesus, to make a point to get alone with God. Like we saw in, in Luke chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha, they invited Jesus over to his house, their house and he came. And Martha gets busy doing what she thinks is important, which is to make dinner. But Mary, on the other hand, sets her priorities different and decides she's going to spend time with Jesus. And that's what we need to do. That was the takeaway. We need to make a point to prioritize and, and set to set everything else in our lives aside for a period of time and spend alone time with God every single day. And then last week we looked at the story of, of Peter as he walked on the water with Jesus. We talked about the fact that our fears and our worries and our anxieties can have a huge impact on our lives. They can be a huge distraction in our walk with God. Our fears and our anxieties literally can, like Peter did, like it did for Peter, take our eyes off of Christ, and it can begin to cause us to drown in our circumstances and our own emotions. This can affect not only our emotions, but it affects our physical health. It can affect our relationships. It can affect um, our walk with God. Right? Fear and anxiety can be a huge distraction in all of our lives, and we discovered that the solution to this fear and worry and anxiety is, number one, keep that appointment with God. And if you're going to you know, hear a repeated theme over and over again in this series. That's it. Keep that appointment with God every day. Number two, you need to preach yourself the gospel because that's where our hope is, regardless of what happens in your life. You know, we're saved by grace through faith, by the blood of Jesus, by the work that he's done for us. That's where our hope comes from. And that if he can do that, then we can trust him to take care of us. And number three, we need to be like Peter. We need to cry out to Jesus when things overwhelm us. When we find ourselves, we've lost sight of Christ. When we find ourselves sinking in our circumstances, in our emotions, we need to cry out to Jesus, trusting that he's going to be there for us. Now, this right here was just a really quick review of where we've been in the last couple of weeks. And in your note sheet, I've included just a little note, um, note sheet about the, the review here that you can take home with you. Uh, but, but believe me, there's more to what we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. And if you've missed any of it, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to, um, uh, to the messages you've missed on SoundCloud or um, our church website and get all caught up. But this week, we're going to change gears a little bit. I want to talk about um, a distraction that gets in our way um, that most of us do not even realize exists. 
In fact, this is the hardest distraction, I think, to identify of all the things that we're going to talk about in this series. It's probably the hardest one for us to spot. And the reason for that is this distraction isn't something that comes from outside. It's not something out there begging for our attention. It actually comes from within us. It's something in us that diverts our attention. It comes from within our minds. And it is so subtle. It is so sneaky. But yet, at the same time, it is very, very influential because most of us are not even aware that this distraction exists. But it does. It's something within all of us. It's something that influences every single one of us. It can be a huge distraction in our lives, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. And so the most unrecognized and the most subtle distraction in our lives is our assumptions. And you might think, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's, how, how can my assumptions be a distraction? Well, it's really easy. You see, we all have them. We all have assumptions. We all have preconceived ideas about lots of things. We make assumptions about people. We make assumptions about how the world works. We make assumptions about simple things like light switches. You go to any building anywhere, you go into a light switch and you flip that switch, you're going to assume that that light's going to come on. When you go to the the gas station, you assume that when you put that credit card in that machine that your bank is still in business and your money's still there. When you put the pump in your car, you are assuming that you're going to get gas in your tank and not root beer. Right? You don't think about it. You just assume. We make assumptions about lots of simple things like that, but we also make assumptions about very, very complex things that you don't even understand, like, like gravity. Every time you take a step, you make an assumption that that force of gravity is going to work exactly the way it has your entire life, or that when you sit down in the chair, that that chair has the ability structurally to hold you up. And we've seen what happens when that, that wasn't the truth, right? But we make those kinds of assumptions all the time. And, and Some of our assumptions are fairly certain, like the assumption about gravity, but other ones are not so certain, like your bank account, especially if you're not balancing your checkbook every day. You can't always assume what's in there. We make assumptions all the time about things that can profoundly influence our our lives, right? Things that, that can influence your family. What you assume about how children are and how they behave and how they think will influence how you treat your children, What you assume about how women act and behave and what they think will influence how you treat your wife. And by the same token, it will influence how you treat your husband. Your assumptions influence how you see politics. Just look at Facebook. You see that all the time. There are lots of people making big assumptions. People assuming the best in people. Other people assuming the worst in people. Some people assuming everybody's a racist. Everybody else is assuming everybody else is stupid. Right? And, And there's no room for conversation. It's just a lot of assumptions. Right? Your, your assumptions can influence how you relate to other people. If you're someone who doesn't trust people and you think everyone's out to get you, you're going to treat people a certain way. If you're someone who happens to be a little bit more open and who thinks the best of people, then you're going to act differently. Your, your, your assumptions um, will influence how you, how you, uh, what you believe about the world around you. And what you believe, what scientific information that you're willing to accept and reject, your assumptions will, will change how you approach your work. If your assumption is that the company doesn't like you and, is, is, and, and doesn't care about you, then your work ethic is probably going to be one way. But if you believe that you're valued and taken care of, your work ethic is going to be different. Our assumptions influence every single part of our life. But here's the thing. Some of your assumptions are well-founded. Some of them are based on really good information. Some of them are based on good, solid experience. But many 
of your assumptions are not. Many of your assumptions are based on, on, on ignorance. Many of our assumptions are really wrong. Many of our assumptions are wrong even about God. Many of us have deeply flawed assumptions about God about who he is and about what he is doing in our lives. And and, and I'm not just talking about people who don't know God. I'm not talking about just the atheist and the agnostic. I'm talking about people who have a savoring relationship with Christ and people who at least have made a profession of faith in Jesus. Many people, including many Christians, have faulty assumptions about God, right? And that's exactly what this text is about the distraction that our faulty assumptions create in our relationship with God. It's a diversion that gets in the way of our relationship. So let's take a look at that text again. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And the first thing I want you to notice um, in, in this is that Jesus really clearly identifies the origin of all of our distractions. The origin of our distractions from God, the things that take our our mind away from God, though they manifest themselves in many different ways in the physical world, ultimately, they are spiritual in their origin. Their origin is spiritual. And Jesus clearly identifies in the text what that origin, that spiritual origin is. It is the devil. It is Satan himself who seeks to distract you from God. It is Satan himself who will, who will stoke your fears and your worries and your anxieties and all the things that make you worry to cause you to lose sight of God. It is Satan himself who gently encourages you and whispers in your ear to get busy and to take on more than you can do so you can feel important and that you can be a good person. And suddenly you don't have any more time for God. It's Satan himself who plants these seeds of faulty assumptions within us about God. That's why Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He knew what was at the heart of Peter's words. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus says about distractions. He says, Peter, right? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Now, this word hindrance that we have in the English standard version of the text is from the Greek word, which is pronounced scandalon. And it's certainly the word, the word of the word scandal. But what it means is it's a stumbling block. It's an obstacle. It is something that makes a person fall. And the idea that's being communicated is a a scandal on is something that gets in the way. It's something that keeps a person from moving forward. That's why the ESV calls it a hindrance. And what Jesus is saying is, Peter, your assumptions, your distractions are a hindrance to me. They're getting in the way. Right? Your thoughts about the future and what you assume to be true are a distraction that gets in the way. You're getting in the way of the work I'm trying to do. You're a hindrance to me, is what he's saying. And this is important for us because our distractions and the assumptions that we make can be a hindrance to the mission of Christ. Because the truth is, as followers of Jesus, you're here on the earth to do something. And what that is, is to move forward the mission of Christ. We are all here to expand the kingdom of God. 
All of us are called to be involved in the work of Jesus, which is sharing the hope that we have in the gospel and making disciples of other people. Because make no mistake about it. We are all called into ministry. We are all called to shine the light of Jesus. We are all called to proclaim the gospel to the people that we come in contact with. We are all called to get busy loving our neighbors so they can see that the love of God is a real thing. Jesus' mission is also our mission. He came to seek and save the lost. And brothers and sisters, we're supposed to do the same. And so our faulty assumptions and our distractions from God can hinder that work. Right? It can hinder that work in our lives, in the church, in the community, and ultimately around the world. Our faulty beliefs or assumptions like Peter's can be a hindrance to the mission of Christ. Now, you might think, well, why, of all people, would, would Peter's assumptions end up faulty to begin with? Why is he distracted by Christ's mission? I mean, he was with Christ. He's been, he was talking with Jesus. Right? Jesus is telling him what's going on. So how does this, his assumptions end up sideways? Is it because he just doesn't understand? Is it because, you know, he didn't know? Is it because he wasn't saved yet? Is it because, you know, he didn't, he wasn't enlightened by the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question actually is no. He was saved and his mind was opened by the Holy Spirit, at least a little bit. And we know that for sure because of the context. You see, right before this particular passage of scripture, there is a section above where Jesus asks a very important question. He says, he asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Or in other words, Jesus is asking his disciple, who is everybody else saying that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's like, I know the answer. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting on. You're the one that's been promised in scriptures. You're the son of God. And notice how Jesus responds to that. He answered him and said, blessed are you. Happy are you, Simon Barjona or Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven. Jesus is like, great job, Peter. You hit the nail right on the head. You're exactly right. You answered the question right. But you didn't do so out of your own abilities, right? It was given to you by God. God himself revealed to you this truth. And then Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock or on this truth that you just proclaimed about who I am, I will build my truth and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I want you to understand what happened here, Okay. Because this is one continual conversation. It goes from one to the next. And what happened here is Peter got the answer right. So it, a little while later, Jesus is going to call him Satan, right? But just before, Peter gets the answer right. Peter knows Jesus personally. He's been there with him this whole time for years now. And, and Jesus performs all kinds of miracles and Peter saw them. In fact, remember Peter, a few chapters before, actually walked on the water with Jesus. And he's seen Jesus heal people. So, G so Peter knew who Jesus was, and more than that, Peter had his eyes opened by God himself to the truth about Christ. Peter was indeed a believer, right? And Jesus told Peter, on this truth, on your proclamation about me being the Messiah, I'm going to build my church. Good job, Peter, he says, in other words. So Peter knew the answer, and this is important for us, because okay? I want you to hear me. You can know the answer. 
Right? You can know the answer. You can know Christ personally. You can come to church since you're a little kid. You can work in ministry and you can be a Christian for years and years and years and still have assumptions about God, assumptions about Christ that are incorrect. I mean, because Peter did, right? You can't really, I think, get any closer to Jesus than Peter. You will still have faulty assumptions about God. And these assumptions can then distract you in your relationship from God and hinder his mission, just like Peter. Being Peter, a believer, someone who was with Christ, the one who, who Jesus said, on your proclamation of building my church, even he had faulty assumptions. And I'm not talking about insignificant ones either. I'm talking about really, really big, faulty assumptions. Assumptions like that, that were so wrong, right, that, that would cause Peter, the disciple, the student, to call out right, his master, that he somehow now had the authority to rebuke Jesus, the master. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter looked, took him aside and said, and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. You see, Peter's faulty assumptions about Christ led him to think that he had the right and the authority to correct Jesus. Right? He thought that he knew better than God. Think about that for a second. He thought he knew better than God himself. Which then led Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. See, the thing is, the heart of the matter is this. Jesus identified that when he said that you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You see, Peter's problem is the fact that Peter assumes that his vision of the future, right, is the same as God's vision of the future. Peter assumes that his program is God's program. Peter assumes that his plans are God's plans. Many, many people assume that their plans are God's plans. And the problem is that all of this and all of these assumptions are all about Peter, but not God. You see, Peter absolutely believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He believed that Jesus was the one. Everyone was waiting to come and make things right. But the problem is he had a lot of assumptions about what that actually meant. You see, Peter was a very, very Jewish person with a very Jewish, rabbinical Jewish perspective about the Messiah. A perspective that grew up around rabbinical Jewish theology between the Old and New Testament. And it was a time of great turmoil when this theology developed, a time of great oppression. The Jews were oppressed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians and the Greeks, and now, during Peter's time, the Romans. And the major theme of this perspective is this idea that the Messiah was going to come and, and expel by force the Roman government and all its troops. And then once that happened, they were going to establish Israel as a dominant superpower once again. And Peter believed that Jesus would lead that revolt personally, and that he would literally ascend to King David's throne and then king and become king over Israel forever and ever and ever. That's what Peter believed. And Peter also believed that since he was close to Jesus and that when Jesus became the king, then Peter would be a VIP. Peter would be like second in command. 
He would be Jesus's right hand man. That was his assumption. That's what he brought to the table. He assumed he was going to be that Jesus was going to be this conquering king and not a suffering servant. Peter assumed that Jesus was going to restore the nation of Israel to this new golden age, but not but not allow the Romans to kill him. And so when Jesus said that he's going to be tortured and he was going to be killed and raised a new life, Peter rebukes him. Why? Because it doesn't fit with Peter's assumptions. It doesn't fit with his program. And in fact, notice Peter's not even listening to Jesus anymore. Jesus is saying one thing and Peter's assuming something completely different. He's not listening to Jesus. Peter, in his mind, has got it all figured out. He assumed that his thoughts about Jesus were right. And because of that, he's rejecting the truth of what Jesus, the living word of God, is actually saying. You see, Peter is is shaping his view of Christ by his assumptions. He's shaping his view of Jesus by his preconceived ideas. Instead of shaping his assumptions by the word of God that Jesus is telling him. And before you say, well, that's really dumb, understand, people do this all the time. All the time. People ignore the word of God all the time in favor of their preconceived ideas, in favor of their assumptions, in favor of their feelings. In fact, a major distraction for many people who call themselves Christians is this very thing. Because we can be distracted when our view of God, when our preconceived notions of God are shaped by our assumptions. I want to say that again. We can get distracted in our relationship with God when our view of God is shaped by our assumptions rather than our assumptions being shaped by what the word of God actually says. When our assumptions and our preconceived ideas, be they from our culture, be they from our upbringing and what grandma used to tell us, right? be they from our emotions and what our feelings are telling us, When our assumptions shape how we look at God rather than what the word of God actually says, we have become distracted from God and we've lost sight of who he really is. And we develop a faulty view of God because the reality is our view of God has become then man-centered instead of God-centered. That's what Jesus says to Peter. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. And and, and you're not looking at things from God's perspective. You're looking at it from from man's perspective. Your mind and your heart is not set on the things of God. It's it's set on the things that you want and what you think and what you assume. You have a man-centered view of who I am, Peter. You have a man-centered view of how all this is going to work out. And understand, it's not just Peter. It happens all the time. This happens all the time. You can see this throughout our entire Christian world here in America. Most people, and I will say that, I don't always say that, but most people who claim to follow Christ tend to have their hearts and their minds set on man-centered ideas. It's not because they don't they want to. It's just, there's just assumptions they don't even know they have. And we can find the fruit of this all around us. For example, the prosperity gospel. If there's a man-centered view of God based on assumptions, it is this. The prosperity God assumes that God's purpose for life, his purpose for creating you, was to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. That God brought you into a relationship with you to prosper you on the earth beyond your imaginations, and so you can have all your material desires fulfilled if you just have enough faith. That is not what the Bible says. It is not 
what the Word of God says. The purpose of your life is, is the same purpose that he has for everything else. The purpose for your life is to bring him glory. God's purpose for everything is to, to bring him glory. That is why he created you. God says to the prophet Isaiah, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You were created and you were saved for the glory of God. You're not in a relationship with God just because he likes you. You're in a relationship with God because it brings him glory. He certainly saved you because he loves you and he sacrificed for you. But ultimately, it's about his glory, not about your material prosperity in this life. And more than that, God does not promise you a lot of wealth and an easy life just because you have faith in him. He promises other things more important. Salvation from your sins. He promises a future hope and eternity with him. He promises to strengthen you in this life when things get hard. He promises to never leave you or forsake you, but he never, ever, ever promised a pain-free, problem-free life. In fact, Jesus actually promises something different than that. He promises that life is going to be hard. He said in his own words, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not you may have trouble. You might have trouble. You could possibly, maybe someday, if you don't do things right. No, you will absolutely have trouble. You're all going to face your own tribulations at some point. We're all going to go through hard times. But he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul tells us, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to follow God will experience difficulty. Not to mention when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. The Bible does not promise you if you will believe in Jesus, all of your problems are going to magically go away and everything is going to be perfect. The prosperity gospel is based on a man-centered assumption and a desire to be rich and not by the word of God. And so in the end, it's a, it's a belief system that is flawed and it tends to lead you empty because here's the greatest problem of it. The prosperity gospel is about the assumption that the gift is greater than the giver. You see, people come to the prosperity gospel because they want the gifts, but they don't want the giver. When you finally realize that the greatest gift you can have is the giver himself giving himself over to you, then everything else fades in comparison. Now, another example of the, of the fruit of, of a man-centered view of God is legalism. Legalism assumes that on some level, maybe subconsciously, maybe not out loud, but God's approval ultimately is about what we do for him. That it's about our behavior, at least a, a little bit. Right? And, and, it's, and it's a little harder to detect because, because a lot of people fall into legalism. They don't outwardly say you know, that, that you have to do stuff. In fact, they will affirm that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. They will affirm that salvation isn't by works, but by, by faith in Christ alone. That, it, that his atoning work on the cross is what saves you. They will say and affirm that, but slowly, subtly, legalism creeps into people's lives as they begin to change, as they begin to grow. Maybe someone who struggles with alcohol stops drinking and they find victory, right, from that vice in their life. And then they go, that's right. All true Christians don't drink, right? So maybe, maybe they, they, they've overcome the lust in their hearts by cutting out things in their lives like movies and secular music. And so they say, 
That means all true Christians don't listen to secular music or movies. Right? They, they, you know, or, or maybe you know, they get saved in a church where everybody gets dressed up and, and, and everybody's wearing a suit and tie. And they say, that's right. All true Christians go to churches that look like the church that I got saved in. And what ends up happening is not that it's overt, but in their mind becomes this little bitty list of things that they're judging their performance by and everybody else by instead of just the gospel. All true Christians look like me. All true Christians act like me. Legalism is this belief that subtly attaches itself to the gospel. Yes, you're saved by grace, but you also need to stop doing this and start doing that and don't do this and don't talk to them and avoid these people. And it just becomes this list that goes on and on and on. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want you to hear me on this. I firmly believe that when you're saved, your life's going to change. You cannot encounter the, the, the creator of the universe and it not change you. Right? Your life will change when you come to Christ. And you will begin to bear fruit in your life of that salvation. It'll be evident. And you'll begin to love God and love what he loves. And then you begin to start hating the things that he hates, which is sin in all of its forms. But hear me, your ability to stop sinning is not the prerequisite for your salvation. Praise the Lord for that. Faith in Christ is the prerequisite. The grace of God is the prerequisite. And the other thing that you need to know is your ability to keep yourself from sin is not the prerequisite for staying saved. The faithfulness of God is the prerequisite for that. You see, legalism assumes that there's something I need to do to make God love me and approve of me. I need to do something at least to prove that I'm saved. But the Bible teaches there's nothing, nothing, nothing you can do to save yourself. And the proof of your salvation ultimately is the grace-driven change in your life of you not trying to do a list of things, but holding on to Jesus and turning to him and trusting him more and more and more. Now, the other end of the spectrum of this is this man-centered view of sentimentality. Sentimentality is, it assumes that because God is love and because God is a loving God, then no one's really in trouble. God's not really angry. And because of that, then it really doesn't matter what we do or what our views of sin are because, because it doesn't matter in my life because if God's a loving God, then he's not going to commit anybody to hell. Regardless of what the Bible says about sin and depravity, God, if he's a loving God, then I believe that he's not going to send anybody to hell. And you'll hear people say this all the time. This is a really hard one too, especially when you, you've been asked to preach a, um, somebody's funeral and you know that, that the person might not be a believer, and you have people saying they're in a better place. It's really, really tough because people don't want to hear it. They do not want to hear the truth, right? They'll say, I just can't imagine a loving God sending this person to hell. Oh, you know what? This, they're such a good person. I, I know that they don't believe in Jesus, but really, they have such a good heart. And they did so many great things. Or you know what? I know she isn't living the way she's supposed to be living, but, but you know what? God wouldn't send her to hell. He would just know, you know, their heart. But this is built on faulty assumptions, faulty assumptions, assumptions driven by, by not the Bible, but by our emotions. I mean, I understand the prospect of hell is a horrid idea, right? The thought of anyone spending eternity in torment should cause you to shudder. It should make your heart ache. It should cause you to grieve, knowing that everyday people step off into eternity who don't know Christ that are in hell right now and will be there forever should be something that stirs you to tears, but because it hurts our feelings and, and rattles our emotions doesn't make it less true. 
And at the root of this false assumption is the belief that God's attribute of love is really the only one that counts. Right? And our concept of love is really what we think God's love is. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that his ways are higher than our ways. And he also teaches that God is not just love, but he is also just and holy and righteous. And God is a God of grace, amazing grace, but also a God of overwhelming wrath. In fact, we spent several weeks talking about that in a series we just finished up on about who God is. Not to mention that the New Testament talks about hell 23 times, and 17 of that is Jesus talking about hell. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. It's an important thing to understand. Jesus talks more about hell, and he spends more time talking about hell than he does heaven. Why? Because heaven's the easy one to believe in. The Bible teaches, right, that for God to be love, for him to be a loving God, he must also be just. Otherwise, it's just sentimentality. By the same token, if a God's going to be just, he must also be loved. Otherwise, it's brutality. Jesus has to be both. God has to be both. And so the view of sentimentality is a faulty view of God based on false assumptions. And I'm telling you, if there's something in our culture that's sending people to hell, it is this view right here, that there is no hell. And more and more Christians have bought into this idea that there is no hell. We're all going to be fine anyway. Another very common man-centered view of God is what is known as mysticism. And I know that sounds maybe foreign or maybe mysterious or maybe even cultic, but really it's, it's something that's really prevalent in the church today. I spent some time around some people yesterday that, that really kind of expressed a lot of mysticism. They didn't even know it. They didn't even recognize it. And what I mean by mysticism is this assumption that my feelings and my intuitions and my religious experiences are God's voice in my life, regardless of what this says. Let me give you an example. I know a couple of different men who in the last year have told me, I believe it's God's will for my life, my wife, my life to leave my wife. I believe it's my will that they just move on, that I just move on. And I found a peace about that is what they, what they say in their own, in, in their own words. And I, and I, I try to talk to them, explain to them, you can't, you can't get there and, and say that this is the voice of God. I mean, let me be clear. That is not God's voice that you're hearing is what I said to them. That's your own emotions. Right? That's your feelings because the word of God is clear about this issue. God's will is never for a man to leave his wife. I mean, Jesus makes an exception when it comes to sexual immorality, but Jesus didn't say you, you, you must, you know, he just says you could, he didn't say you should. So mysticism is when my thoughts and my feelings and my emotions become the authority in my life equal to or greater than the word of God. It's about what I feel and not what God says. I believe that God's speaking to me through my feelings and intuition and not his word. And many, many, many people operate this way. More people than you might think. People who, who never, ever, ever read the Bible say God spoke to me. But I want you to hear me on this. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does the word of God suggest that you do anything or believe anything from inside you, simply based on your feelings and emotions, if it's not confirmed in the word of God. Nowhere. Over and over and over, the Bible exhorts us to believe what God says. Any intuition or feeling that does not line up with what the word of God actually says is not to be trusted. 
If you, if, if what you think and feel does not actually line up with the inerrant word of God, whether it's a burning feeling in your chest or whether it's a dream or whether it's a sense of peace or an audible voice from heaven or even an angel standing next to your bed, if what you heard does not line up with this, it's a false assumption. Let me be clear. I'm not someone who believes that God never ever speaks to his people or intervenes in his lives, in their lives. I'm not one of those people. In fact, my own testimony is about the fact that God intervened in my own life in a way that I couldn't deny that he existed, speaking to my heart. But that was the beginning. Then I went to a Bible study and I heard the gospel and I believed. And from then on, my whole life has been about learning and understanding and believing this. From that point in my life, it's been about the word of God, not just my feelings. There have been times I've believed that God has led me somewhere, right? But I've always, always, always confirmed with the word of God. I believe that God does prompt and nudge and push. But his primary way that he speaks to us is here. And if what we feel doesn't line up with that, then it's wrong. And so two things. If your feelings contradict scripture, your feelings are not of God. It's that simple. There's no if, ands, or buts around. This is immutable. If your feelings are against scripture, then your feelings are wrong. If you feel, step number two, if you feel God speak to you, right, and you feel that he's leading you by speaking to you, but you are never, ever, ever, ever in the word of God, you might be wrong about that. Time to actually get in the word and check. We must always, always, always check our feelings and our intuitions and our religious experiences by the word of God. Mysticism can be a very big distraction in people's lives. And finally, the last man-centered view of God that I want to touch on this morning is what's called consumerism. And this is probably probably one of the most subtle of them all. And the reason why is because consumerism is the American way. We live in an individualistic country with a free market economy, right? That is that is driven by we must satisfy the customer. And I'm not saying and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I think consumerism and is a good thing. I mean, especially when it comes to buying goods and services. You buy something that doesn't work, you go to the company that, that, that you bought it from and they treat you bad, you just go somewhere else. Right? That's what consumerism. If you don't like it, you just move on. Right? If you don't like what's on television, you just change the channel. If you go to a restaurant and you don't like what uh, they served you, then you just go somewhere else. You buy a car that fits your needs, your budget, and your taste. You buy your clothes because what you think looks good. You listen to certain kinds of music because of the way it makes you feel. See, consumerism is about the consumer. It's about you. Consumerism and the free market economy are actually good things. It's a good way to buy goods and services. It's a good way to create opportunities. But the problem is consumerism has infiltrated our theology, especially our theology of the church. You see, for many Americans, we, we think that coming to church is about us. That it's about our likes and our preferences. People shop around, you know, for a church like they shop around for a new shirt or a new restaurant. Do I like the environment? Do I like the experience? Is the music the way I like it? Do people dress the way they think they should dress? Is, is the service too long? Is it too short? Actually, nobody ever complains about the service being too short. Um... 
Does the church use my favorite version of the Bible? Are there chairs? Are there pews? People often choose their churches based on their consumer preferences. I heard somebody talk about that, you know, um, that there was a pastor reading about church reviews on Twitter, right? Actually, people reviewing, you know, yes. Rather than just be, rather than actually focusing on what's being taught from the pulpit, they, they worry about the consumer things. And this is important because, because, is the word of God actually being preached? That is what changes lives, right? Is Christ being exalted in worship? Because that's more important than the music style. Are people actually growing in their walk with Christ? Because that's what church is for. Helping people to know Jesus and grow towards spiritual maturity. But so many people choose their churches based on consumerism. Many people choose churches and leave churches for the same things. Well, I just don't like the fact that we don't do altar calls every week, so I'm leaving. I don't like the fact that we don't share testimonies every single week freely, so I'm leaving. I was invited to lead the prayer this week, so I'm leaving. Well, I don't like, you know, that the pastor isn't on board with what I want to do, so I'm leaving. Well, I don't like the service times. I don't like the fact that we sing hymns. I don't like the fact that we sing, uh, we, we sing too many hymns. I don't like the color of the paint. I don't like the pastor's jokes because they're not very funny. I don't like the fact that the services are ran different than way it was when I was a kid. So guess what? I'm leaving. And most people visit churches and leave churches based on this consumerism, not actually what God is doing in their lives. Because consumerism says that church, my church experience is about me coming to a place where I consume. I consume worship. I consume the sermon. I consume the church experience. And after it's all done, I have the right to decide whether I like it or don't like it. I really like that sermon, but the music really stunk. You know, that music set was pretty good, but man, that sermon was long. So I didn't like that. Church family, you need to hear me on this. Church isn't about you consuming something that you like. Church is about you getting something that you need. I'm going to say that one more time. Church isn't about, you, isn't about you consuming something you like. It's about you getting something that you need. It's not that you, it, okay, what you need is not an experience that tickles your fancy, but the word of God being fed to your soul. You need the word of God preached into your hearts. You need to lift up your voice and passionately proclaim your love for Christ. You need to connect with your brothers and sisters and encourage one another, whether it's one service or two. You don't need an experience that meets your taste. You need to be built up. You need to be strengthened so you can go out there in the world and get busy living out the life and doing what God is calling you to do. You need to get your marching orders and then get out there and take the fight to the enemy because church, the gates of hell are not supposed to stand against us. But consumerism gets in the way. It assumes that my church experience is about me and about my preference. Who cares about what's going out in the rest of the world? But the word of God says that church is about you getting plugged into the body of believers so you can be built up and become more like Christ and, and go where Christ is leading you to go. In fact, Paul says it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, which is our mission statement um, text. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to, for a reason, to equip the saints. Church, you're the saints. 
to equip the saints for, so there's a purpose for this, for the work of ministry. Saints, you're called, all of you, into ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, we are all called to grow to spiritual maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be immature children who are tossed to and fro by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and all the knucklehead theologians on YouTube and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, you're to grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If we're not doing that, then we're not doing church. Church is about us coming together and growing towards spiritual maturity, building each other up in love, not about our consumer preferences, consumerism, like mysticism and sentimentality and legalism and the prosperity gospel, like all these things is a faulty man-centered assumption. And these kinds of assumptions can be a huge distraction in our walk with God and our effectiveness for the mission of God can be really compromised. So we must repent of our assumptions and reject our men-centered view of God. And as Jesus said, right, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. We need to change that. We need to reverse that. We need to repent from that. We need to set our minds on the things of God and reject our man-centered assumptions and begin to think the gateway God wants us to. In fact, Paul exhorts us in the book of Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you are a believer, seek then things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And very clearly, verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So how do we do this then? How do we change this orientation? Because it's pretty natural for us to really be, you know, man-centered in our thinking and very consumeristic and all these other things. So how do we change that? Well, the answer is, We need to keep our mind set on Christ. Just like we talked about last week, you need to keep your eyes set on Christ. You need to keep your mind set on Christ. We need to saturate our minds with Jesus. But how? Well, it begins, guess what? By keeping your appointment with God. We're going to talk about this over and over and over again. So let me just tell you, if you have not already taken the time to write down a time and a place where you can meet with God every day, then you need to do it today. And if you have a calendar, put it on your calendar. If you have a reminder, put a reminder. But whatever you have to do, get alone with Jesus every single day. Morning, evening, whatever time you pick, you just need to do it. You must spend time with Jesus. If you're going to get your mind set on him, you need to spend time with him. Second thing is you need to hear God's voice. And the way that you hear his voice is by reading his word. And you need to do it every day. Every day while you're in your time with God, Spend some time reading with him. And you might say, you know, Pastor, I just don't have time. I don't believe it. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be pushy here. All right. But I, I know, like, I make excuses too. Right. And I know how busy you are. I, I get that. I know we're all busy. But I do know that there's probably some social media time you could give up. Maybe there might be a little bit of time for television you could give up. You know, some of you younger guys could give up a little Xbox time. You know what I mean? I mean, there are places in our lives where we can just not, you know, 
do something else, but we can actually spend 10 minutes reading the word. Now, you might say, well, but you know what? I'm not a reader. I get that. I understand that. I mean, there's some people that aren't readers. I mean, I, I mean, we have a kid in our youth group who's severely dyslexic. But I'll tell you, she doesn't let that be, become an excuse for her either. Because if you have one of them newfangled, you know, um, electronic devices, then go to the app store and download the version, uh, a Bible app. And then you can have any version of the English Bible you want. And what's really cool is if you don't want to read it, then you hit the button, it'll read it to you. Really simple. It's not complicated. So there's not an excuse because really you can listen to the Bible when you drive to Lancaster. I know you all do that once in a while. Some of you guys drive to work. You can listen then. You can, you can listen while you're doing the dishes. I know some of you might do the dishes from time to time, right? You can, you can do it while, if you put headphones on, you can do it while you mow the lawn. When you go for your walk, you can do it when you're down at Bo's gym exercising. You can listen to the word of God and you can do it basically anytime. So that's the second thing is you need to be in the word of God. The third thing is you need to be in, you need to be studying the Bible. Right? Not just reading it, but actually taking the time to take it apart and studying it. And maybe like once a week would probably be a good place to start. Whether it's a devotion, whether it's an in-depth Bible study where you're digging into the nuts and bolts of the text, you need to be in a Bible study regularly. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I don't know how to study the Bible. Well, good. That's what we're here for. We can help you with that. In fact, I'll suggest Rick Warren's uh, book called How to Study the Bible. Now, 12 Bible study methods. I promise you it'll change your life. It did mine. And they're not complicated. You can do everything from real simple, like devotional studies, or you can do very complicated word studies. It's, it's all written out there. Now, you might say, well, I don't want to read another book. Fine. Then you know what? In the bulletin, every week, there's a list of Bible studies that you can attend on different days that you can actually come and show up. And then actually the Bible study is done. And all you have to do is sit there and listen and participate. In fact, Richard's at the back, you know, promoting his next Bible study for, for his Thursday night group. Um, and you can sign up for that or the ladies' study or, 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 or Keith Baird's Sunday night study, or we have a Roman study here on, on Friday. And if still that doesn't work for you, then guess what? I got even one better. Um, I'll give you access to 10,000 Bible studies online that you can watch anytime you, anywhere you go, on your TV, on your phone, on your tablet, on your PC. All you got to do is give me your email address. I will then, I will, I'll send you a link. You get hooked up, and you have access to all of it. So men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, kids' Bible studies, how to be a parent, how to manage your finances, how to, to know Jesus better, how to study theology. You want to get geeky with theology, you can do that too. There are all kinds of those Bible studies, and it's free, right? And then guess what? Once you get good at that and you figure out how to like, you know, perform the Bible study, go buy a bag of chips, and now you're ready to host a small group in your own house, and then we can put you on the list. It's really that easy. Now, the fourth thing is you need to meditate on the Word of God. Don't just study it, but you need to meditate on it. You need to think about it. It needs to be in your head, and that's how it gets into your hearts. And again, you might say, well, I don't have, really. I mean, you know that excuse is going to work for so long, with me at least. So you do have time, because in your time that you're reading the Bible or you are studying the Bible, there's always a verse at some point in your life that will stand out to you. Write that verse down on a little card, put it on your mirror, put it on your dashboard, put it by your phone charger somewhere you're going to look. And when you look at it, read it. And then, when you, and then as you go through the day, think about it. That's meditating. Meditating on Scripture isn't like you have to have like scented candles in a dark room, you know. It's really just thinking about the Word of God. Now, finally, here's the really important one. You need to do it. Keep your appointment with God. Read the Word. Study the Word. Meditate on the Word. And then do it. All right? Let us be 
not only hearers, but doers also. If you want your mind to be changed and focus on Christ, then you need to do what Jesus says to do. He says, love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. That one's hard. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he says. Trust God and lean not on your understanding. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, he says. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do the word of God. You learn something from the word of God. There's a word of God that speaks to your life. Then you have to do it. Somebody that I know and love very dearly, all right, said to me once, I really just am not hearing the word of God. I said, let's pray about that. And suddenly they had a thing in their life that was going on. And all of a sudden she starts reading the, the word of God. And she's like, oh, God's speaking to me. And I don't even really think I like it. But she realized that she needed to, to do what God was calling her to do. So keep your appointment with God. Read the word of God. Study the word of God. Meditate on it and do it. If you do that, you're not going to have a problem keeping your mind on Christ. And a lot of these assumptions, these false assumptions, will begin to go away. And you will find that your life and your walk with God will become less and less distracted. And I promise you, the less distracted you are from God, the more joy and hope and satisfaction you will feel in your life. All the while, we're looking forward to the day when he, when he comes back for us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, your word absolutely is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it cuts, Lord. And I praise you that it cuts. I praise you, Father, that it cuts where we need to be cut, reminding us we need to be changed. We need to be made new. We need to be shaped differently. We need to get rid of the way that we think that doesn't conform itself to your word. It's just so easy, Lord, for us to get caught up in the way we want to think, for us to, like, want to be influenced by other people. But, Lord, give all of us this desire to be shaped by your word. Give us the desire to know you for who you really are. Not these false images that we can pretend about you. Even if the word sometimes hurts our feelings, even if it sometimes shakes us up, Lord, let us embrace it. Let us love it. Let us hold on to it. And let us not be diverted from you. Help us to set our minds on you. And I pray, Father, Lord, I'm begging you today to raise up a people in this church who are bold in their faith who will walk out of here and storm the gates of hell and who will tell people about Jesus and who will be, be unashamed to talk about the Jesus that they love and are willing to share the hope that comes with knowing him. And I pray, Father, that all of us would be touched by that. And I pray that you would meet everyone's needs, whether they're physical, material, emotional, or spiritual. That, Father, that you would connect with all of our hearts, Lord, and lead us further a deeper relationship with you. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.